Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast that's no closer to the abyss. My name's Corey Hazelhurst, and my partner in propaganda is Steve Haynes. Hey, Corey. In this episode, we're going to talk about the Doomsday Clock. It's still set at 100 seconds to midnight. After this jaunty theme tune, we'll try and talk about what that actually means. clock last year didn't we it's a bulletin of the atomic scientists and it's been going since i think 1947 which looks at what are the threats to humanity and the planet in the 40s it was more about the cold war um first set at three minutes to midnight in 1949 once the russians had launched a nuclear bomb it went as far as 17 minutes to midnight in 1991 after the cold war and we talked about this last year because it was set at 100 seconds to midnight which i'm pretty sure is the closest that it's ever been to midnight or kind of the apocalypse virtually because in after the cuban missile crisis it was set at three minutes to midnight so we're even closer to, to Armageddon than that. I wanted to talk about this, partly just to revisit it after what we talked about last year, but also because a, a friend who I think might be a listener, hello, John, if you're listening, we, we passed each other at a park at a social distance. Uh, and he said to me, how's your apocalypse going? Um, which is, is quite a nice jaunty greeting we should probably all start using. Um, and I suppose it's interesting that, 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 that COVID is this um, massive world-changing event that we're running into but in terms of the bulletin of the atomic scientists they've not actually moved the clock any closer to to midnight and armageddon have they so it was 100 seconds to midnight this year and it's 100 seconds to midnight last year as well yeah and i I think a big part of that is just there's always been when it comes to covid this this expectation that a vaccine would be found even right at the beginning of the beginning of the pandemic uh there was still a notion of okay we'll get a vaccine it's just a question of when do we get the vaccine um so i think from the perspective of the people who are setting the doomsday clock given they are very much from that that scientific background they are going to have been looking at the pandemic from the perspective of this is what science can do to to counter this um and as such making that shift to moving us towards uh, you know, closer to to, to to the end of the world doesn't necessarily make sense for for COVID um, unless something had got something else happened, which had meant you know uh, vaccines were not appropriate in some capacity for this. And even then, um, the, the reality is civilization would have still continued in some capacity. It would just have been very very different one of our more cheerier episodes this one isn't it it really is there's a couple of things just looking at the 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 bullet the 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 sort of justification from the bulletin of the atomic scientists of um why they've come to this calculation and they they talk about although as they say that their view on covid is very much it's it's not an existential threat but a couple of things that they do talk about in terms of how covid19 directly impacts on any of the other existential threats that we're, we're, we're facing uh, one of them is about how, um, obviously, one of the big existential threats to the planet at the moment is, is 
the climate emergency. That is a global problem requiring a global solution. As was COVID, that's a global problem requiring a global solution. Well, the question that's posed by this report is, given we saw the huge amount of disruptive events that we we discussed in the podcast, like the wildfires in Australia, lots of other things as well. If, if countries can come together to combat COVID, can that sort of commitment to multilateralism be seen across the world to try and con- combat climate change as well? What COVID has kind of demonstrated is that it is possible for governments of all different kind of shades, flavours, political leanings, get either acting individually or as, as, as groupings in, in various forms to to act when there is a, a crisis um, that is global in nature. Like this, demon, the coronavirus response demonstrates that it is possible for us to do something which would have been considered absolutely far-fetched previously. Like the notion of producing a vaccine, getting it researched, um, tested, approved and then implemented on a global scale in just over a year um you know if you'd said said that uh, two two or three years ago to the people who had been working on the ebola vaccine um they'd have laughed at you because it took them decades to to get to that to the to the kind of point where they'd even were being uh, talking about testing vaccines and, and things like that um because the reality is uh, there wasn't necessarily a massive international push to get moving on this. So what we're seeing here is that absolutely, if there is the political willpower to uh, get moving, there, there there is no excuse really for us to not be uh, applying the same sort of uh, logic uh, to a wider emergency such as such as the climate. Now, the reality is. I'm not expecting us to suddenly turn around and go, and now we are all coming together to deal with the environment. There are a lot of more tricky kind of elements at play in in, in, in all of this. Just for instance, you have countries that are dependent on oil for um, the first major parts of their economy. They aren't going to want to see that switch, so they will be working against it. You have countries which are... Um, not necessarily going to want to make the switch for perhaps cultural reasons. Uh, reasons. Certainly in, in the US, whilst Biden is going big or trying to go big on uh, uh, on uh, infrastructure that, that benefits in terms of dealing with climate change, um, Texas isn't going to want to willingly give up its oil business, you, you know? So you're going to, you, you will always going to have elements struggling. And so fundamentally, Coronavirus was a threat to everywhere, but there was nobody who was pro the status quo of coronavirus. Whilst in regards to the climate emergency, um, there are people who are pro the, the, the status quo because they are seeing themselves quite nicely as, as a result, perhaps short-sightedly um, looking at it from that perspective. But, you know, Saudi Arabia isn't going to want to to see the world move to a, a, a green economy. Um, if it means they don't get to sell their oil anymore, you know? Yeah, and there's a few other specific examples in the bullet. It talks about China's Belt and Road Initiative could pursue sustainable development pathways rather than supporting fossil fuel-intensive developments. Um, Also that, say, banks could implement 
policies which kind of limit investment in fossil fuel projects. Some have started to do that and they could redirect it to more climate-friendly ways. And also we've talked already, and we'll probably be talking about this in the later episode, about COP26, which is the big climate change summit, which is happening in the UK in November. And that might be a way of allowing countries to intensify uh, decarbonisation commitments as well. Another big part of it is about those multilateral institutions. So I suppose that's why the election of Joe Biden is really crucial. And we've talked about, you know, the US has now rejoined the Paris Climate Agreement. So hopefully that might be a spur to using other multilateral institutions. I suppose the other way that this might play out is we, we've talked before about the sort of vaccine diplomacy and vaccine nationalism aspect of, of COVID. And I suppose you have to hope that that's not quite how it plays out. Instead, it has to be about this cooperation through the WHO. And it's it's also about that vaccine justice of making sure that everyone across the world is vaccinated. Um, you know, it, COVAX hopefully will... I mean, at the moment, they're talking about that taking three, four years, aren't they? Um, so it's about trying to speed up that across the world. Another way then that the US can engage more in multilateral institutions is through um, kind of multilateral, I suppose, nuclear disar- disarmament, which the bulletin talks about as well. For instance, then it talks about the the Iran agreement, which uh, obviously Trump left because it wasn't him that negotiated it. And Biden's probably more keen on and also about cooperation between the united states and russia something so one of the thing, other things that the uh, bulletin talks about is about trying to renew cooperation between america and russia on cooperation of fissile material and nuclear security about making sure that terrorists can't acquire the mean, a means to acquire a nuclear bomb as well the, the, the proliferation of, of nuclear weapons is obviously you know one of the the, the main kind of things that, that traditionally the uh, doomsday clock uh, has kind of measured um, as a result of where, 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 when it was formed and, and, and everything. So um, that this is still a, a major part, compartment of it is, is not, not surprising at all. Um, and, and certainly there has been um, internationally, there, there's been some discussion and rumors. And, and I think to some extent, some of this has been, been confirmed that Russia have um, been upgrading their nuclear uh, silos uh, or weapon silos as well so that they are in a stronger position as a nuclear power compared to what they were previously um, and as a result you know you you have this uh, underlying current of are we going back to that you know nuclear standoff uh, situation and you've also got at the same time as this um, governments like Boris Johnson's one, which are putting forth ideas of, oh, we're going to increase the number of uh, nukes that, that that Britain has, which is, to be brutally honest, looks like it's being done not for any strategic reason, um, but it's being done entirely just to try and cause a, a split vote or cause trouble politically for, for Labour, because obviously Labour has quite an, a, an inherent split in 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 the party between people who are i don't like using the words pro-nuclear because uh uh, because it's not really about about that it's between people who are staunchly anti-nuclear arms and are very much in in favor of just getting rid of all of them and, and, and everything whilst you've got one people others who are more pragmatic in the approach um and see that they're as as awful weaponry as they are there is some value to main, either maintaining our position or trying to bring our numbers down in line with everything else. Now, Johnson wants to bring in more 
for no real good reason as far as I can tell um, and as a result of that you are having a situation where the British government is for purely political reasons like trying to make the international sphere a less safe place I would argue because the more the, the more nukes that somewhere like Britain has gives the likes of China and Russia more incentive to purchase more themselves which in turn is eventually going to lead into america needing to do more or britain then going oh you know what actually we probably do need to to do this because this is becoming a threat again and then you end up in that vicious cycle that we saw previously and the fact like there might be a case to be made for if russia is seriously upgrading its nuclear arms that something might need to be done into as a as a response to that like there might be a strategic need for that but broadly speaking that does not appear to be what the uh british uh government is actually looking at in regards to this because the rest of like the strategic defense review doesn't doesn't really look at that in fact it's it's focused on areas which are not linked really to nuclear power and, and as, a, as a like a, a political presence or weapon so it, it just seems to be Johnson being uh, very reckless with uh, with the international sphere for for own, his own party good. Yeah, let's have a a, a a tiny detour on that before we get down to the proper bread and butter issue of world annihilation. So, I think I'm right in saying that this was written by John Bew, wasn't it? This who was the biography yeah. of biographer of Clement Attlee, yeah. um, and Lord Castlereagh. As you say, there's that nuclear weapons aspect, which just feels a bit like a, a political wedge. You've also got the um, this sort of talk about Britain um, not uh, sort of trying to focus more on on Asia, a pivot to Asia, one might say, if one was in America in 2008. Robert Saunders had an interesting um, thread on Twitter who's written a lot about um, sort of his great book was on the 75 referendum. And in that, he talks about actually the the decision to sort of withdraw a lot of troops and weapons from Asia was the decision taken by the Wilson government. And that was essentially part of the sort of decolonization process that was still happening. Essentially that Britain by the sixties just couldn't afford to maintain the empire that it had and the troop commitments that it had and therefore had to make a, a strategic decision. And the decision that was made was to focus on Europe and rather than funding a lot of troops in other countries. And so that's why, you know, Wilson then sends a second application in for EEC membership, which is then rejected by Charles de Gaulle. Again, it just strikes me is this kind of, it's this problem with the global Britain thesis, isn't it? Where actually what we should be doing as a big European power is being like France and Germany. You know, we could be driving a European policy pooling sovereignty, cooperating with European partners and driving the global agenda in that way. And instead, as you say, you've got Johnson sort of assuming that Britain can go it alone, which I, I, I just don't think is, is going to happen. No, it, it really isn't. I mean, to, to kind of put this into context, the uh, a lot of the strategic defence review is kind of focused on trying to present or kind of build uh, Britain up to be a technological superpower. Um, the 
the truth of the matter though is and this is um put i'm, I'm taking the words here of, of david edgerton who is a uh, brilliant um uh, historian of kind of like the military industrial complex the industrial state um and, and is somebody if you're, if you're interested in like 20th century kind of like history is, is it was always worth worth reading in my opinion um he basically did a uh, did a quick twitter analysis on this and said actually you know, it's another example of, of of Boris Johnson saying, "Oh, it's a world-beating system," or or whatever, because we're saying, "Oh, we want to be a superpower," but actually, even with all of this spending and things that's being talked about as part of this review, we're not actually going to be even competing with the likes of Germany. Now, Germany are not necessarily renowned uh, internationally as a technological like superpower, um, and so even if you are going to be uh kind of like competing with them you're still not going to be up in that those upper echelons because to be in those upper echelons you need to be competing with china and america and to a lesser degree underneath that the likes of south korea uh, and, and a load of the other kind of like asian nations as well who are very focused on on technological development um in terms of their their, their research and, and development strategies and industrial and, and industrial strategies overall you know what actually investing more in R&D across a number of different sectors is a good thing for for Britain to do and and kind of should be welcomed and even if like it's going into military applications well the reality is the internet came about as a military application invest investment from DARPA in the US there was an awful lot of uh, things that are developed for the military which then have wider um, impacts in society so actually you know it's still a good thing to 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 do yes the focus might be off slightly compared to what you might do ideally but it's it's not a bad thing to do military r&d necessarily um but we're not going to be doing enough of it we're definitely not going to be in the upper echelons of the international community when it comes to this and it's just yet another example of as you say, this notion of global Britain, but then not actually having anything to to, to follow it up, it's it, it's to me it's very much a a view of Britain which is very limited in terms of what power is. It's very much just focused on we need X amount, we need to be competitive and need to be world beating or or whatever in certain areas in order for us to be taken seriously when the reality is Britain's power base isn't necessarily gonna uh, uh, not not since the you know the end of the empire has it ever really been like about hard power or being in the upper echelons or whatever actually a lot of our power and influence comes from random little things like the fact that English is the business language is, is the language of business like it, it's all of those little things those soft power elements the fact that British culture still permeates an awful lot of the world not necessarily as much as Americans do, America's does but it's still there as well and rather than trying to find ways to utilize that to further like uh, an actual strategy and vision for what britain wants to be be in the world we just have this half-assed idea of well we just need to be the best at something and even then not enough investments to actually make us the best in that thing think about the military technology that the doomsday clock bulletin talks about quite terrifyingly i didn't even know these were a thing it talks about the hypersonics arms race which i didn't know was a thing um so apparently a, a, a hypersonic arms race uh, so a hypersonic weapon 
is a missile, um, a hypersonic weapon is a missile that travels, travels at Mach 5 or higher, which is five times faster than the speed of sound um, or a mile a second. Um, so apparently America and Russia have both done, um, they've engaged in sort of hypersonic weapons tests last year. Uh, as you say, there's other countries as well who are improving their nuclear arsenal. Um, North Korea is still a massive issue. As you say, Russia's improving their, um, in replacing their inter intercontinental ballistic, ballistic missiles. China and India and Pakistan as well all increase in their nuclear arsenal, um, which is um, which is a little bit of an issue. Uh, meanwhile, it doesn't feel like you've got the international agreements in place to monitor effectively those weapons as well. So that's a bit of a problem. And, and then the final thing, and again, this, this is something that we've, we've talked about a lot on the podcast, even if it's just sort of tangentially. But the other aspect of COVID, which... Um, is sort of seen as like a, a kind of supplementary factor in the doomsday clock scenario is that kind of pandemic of misinformation, which we've seen. Uh, again, we've, we've talked about, and I'm sure we will again, talked about that kind of the anti-vax misinformation that's online, a lot of the public health misinformation that's online uh, uh, as the doomsday clock bulletin uh, makes clear actually online misinformation has killed people this year you know we've seen the, the the riots in the in the capital in america as well and so again that's something certainly that's happening about climate change i think i've seen a couple of new stories about the russian intelligence service maybe trying to plant some sort of anti-vax online misinformation as well yeah there's there's been an awful lot of things that uh, essentially if there's something dodgy that's misinformation online chances are the russians are if not actively responsible for it they're at least they're stoking the flames in in, in some capacity um because they view uh, for lack of a better term fake news uh, as a way to destabilize america and a way to destabilize the west which you know makes them look better in in comparison um and ultimately leads into the into the notion of look how wonderful Russia is, because at the end of the day, Russia under Putin is still very much a nationalistic uh, state. Yeah, and, that, and that's one of the recommendations is, um, well, the final recommendation is governments, major communications technology firms, academic experts, and responsible media organisations can cooperate to find practical and ethical ways to combat internet-enabled misinformation and disinformation, which is a hell of an interesting, I wouldn't want that on my midterm appraisal, Steve, if I was a member of staff. Yeah, I mean, and to, to, to be brutally honest, that's just basically saying these people should find a solution to this problem. It's like, yeah, yes, they yes, yes, they should, but like, it's not actually a, a meaningful recommendation in any real way. Let's let's be honest here. But yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the spread of dis, uh, disinformation online is a significant issue. Um, interestingly, I suspect it's going to be one of those things which might be a bit of a time limited issue um because i think an awful lot of the um disinformation that's that's spread uh online is targeted or, or, or received at the very least by certain de demographic age groups um and the younger generations who are more digitally savvy um are less are less likely in many ways to kind of fall prey to um to the to the same kind of uh, uh, uh of content and articles that doesn't mean it's necessarily always it's going to go away completely, but I suspect then it might be one of those things which 
over time it's it, 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 as an issue it just diminishes um but who knows really i think yeah that's an interesting thesis it'd be interesting i wonder if there is research on that that kind of credulity because now it's something that they talk about trying to teach in schools yeah. and i think it is being it's beginning to be taught that sort of digital literacy and certainly anecdotally it always feels like it's the that all the members of my family that get radicalized because they just get their news from facebook um and just will quite happily share things which are they haven't read i mean uh, i mean sh- sharing things that haven't been read is not 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 just a uh a one demographic the vast majority of things that are shared online are not read by the people who are sharing them that is just a, a statistically true fact um but and that, i suppose that's also my point i suppose is yeah. um that the, the logical biases which mean that actually we believe we we believe things that feel they ought to be true yeah uh, i i reckon cuts across i've done it too i'm, I'm not kind of you know uh, I'm not just going to blame my my aunts and grandmas and mums. It's kind of, it's a very human thing, isn't it? Yeah. So how much of it is just uh, a generational thing and how much of it is actually, it's just, it's easier for it to spread. And Nick Clegg isn't doing enough about it, Steve. That, that they should have n- named him, obviously, specifically. Hello, Mark, by the way. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, let, let, let's be honest here. Like, I, I'm sure Nick Clegg genuinely is trying to, battle that within the confines of his role it is going to be a major issue it is a major issue for facebook um it's just probably to be brutally honest mark zuckerberg doesn't want to listen because facebook makes money off of this and if they did deal with it then they make less money if you want us to make money peddling misinformation you can uh specify what podcasts of disinformation you'd like us to record on our patreon page can't you steve uh you can indeed you can also uh specify what bits of uh truth and uh things you would like us to talk about in general rather than just spreading misinformation on our uh, on our patreon page if you head over to patreon.com slash not enough champagne you can uh find uh well our patreon where you can fling us a couple of quid every month to gain access to uh unique episodes that we record for our backers um and uh, as well as the odd uh blog posts and things that are unique to their early access to things um yeah just just, just head on over um sign up join the conversation and uh, we hope to see you there our website's not enough champagne.com our facebook page is facebook.com forward slash not enough champagne dave depper design um no he didn't james crown designed our logo dave Be- um you can follow him on twitter at james crown and dave depper composed our theme tune for good times third time lucky my twitter handles at paperback rioter mine's at acoustic radical happy plotting happy plotting